Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Five Days at Memorial, the Apple TV Plus limited series that aired earlier this year. And my guest is one of the editors, Joanne Yarrow. Joanne, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Five Days in Memorial is set in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and it's based on true events. Today's conversation may contain spoilers for the series, but before we get to that, let's talk about how post-production was structured on this show. So we started back in May of 21, and the editor to start us off was Lou Vu, and they started shooting for a long period of time. They had already started to shoot for about a month when I came on. We continued to shoot all the way really up until November. We were doing two shoots. One was happening in Toronto and the other one was happening later on in New Orleans itself. I see. And so we kind of were able to stagger that way and get in, you know, a bunch of the episodes and kind of start assembling them before we really started to evaluate everything. Now, you did specifically episodes two, three, and five of the eight total. Was there anything about those three episodes that made it natural for you to do them all? Or, I don't know, was it random as far as assignments go? So because of the nature of the way we came on to do it, it was a little bit in terms of, you know, Lou started the first one. He was kind of dipping in because we were block shooting them all at the same time. I came on because we were doing multiple episodes at that point. I, I jumped on and I started immediately cutting two and three and he was cutting one and four at that point. And then as we continued to go, we were just, you know, all hands on deck for whatever was available. At some point I passed episode two over to another editor, Colin Rich, and he took that over. So I took it up through a basic assembly and through all I think except most mostly through the initial photography uh, with the exception of everything in New Orleans and maybe there's some other little pieces and then he continued on so it was kind of a handoff and then I would kind of help just a little bit on some other episodes but it was mainly three and five were pretty much all well they were mine the whole entire time. Got it now when you have multiple editors working on a show like this and I think the show has a certain look and style, what kind of coordination do you guys have to do separate from the actual editing to make sure that that look is maintained? Typically, it might be a little bit more involved of a process, but because this team had basically worked together before, it was really John Ridley's sort of stylistic choices, the way he likes to edit, the way he likes to shoot. We all kind of got on board with that vision. And because myself, Lou, and Colin had all worked with him before, we sort of knew the language that he liked to work with, just um, cinematically. So it was pretty easy for us to kind of go back to reference this show that we had worked on before, which was American Crime, and say, you know, hey, how are we gonna do this? Are we gonna play with time? Are we gonna be flashy? How bold are we going to be? And it was pretty easy to have, we really had a shorthand between the three of us. We were the primary editors. And then 
Um, Marie Lee also got an additional editing credit on, I think, episode four, and Vic Patel came on to do a, a later episode as well. But we sort of, because we already had that established relationship with John, it was really easy just to kind of go for it. And then because we were all so close and already had that established relationship, it just made sense to show each other our work and have everyone weigh in on that and be open to notes and criticism and everything as, you know, a partner, equal collaborator. Now you talk about your experience together on American Crime. Did it take time then to establish this relationship? In other words, so it's a relationship that you developed and then carried over or from the start, was that show similar where you guys worked in, a, in this fashion? No. So this is, you know, I would say American Crime had its own, um, we were a bit more, I think, an insular in our own episodes, but we knew, again, sort of the style that John liked and what he was going for. You know, he's very deliberate. He loves wonners, which is a bit of the language that we see here. He likes to minimal coverage, to keep it very specific and very deliberate, and to not always be in a traditional, conventional storytelling realm. You know, he likes to think sort of a, like a little, a little bit outside the box in that way. And so, you know, it was a little bit different on this because we really worked together to kind of figure it out what it was going to be, especially when archival came into play and how that was all going to work out. Well, let's talk more about the use of archival footage throughout this series, because there's a couple of different places. And it's not a completely new technique, but some of the ways that it was applied here, I think, uh, well, I go so far as to say broke new ground. But tell me how that kind of discussion came about. What we were finding was John wanted to make it very clear that we are not using archival as sort of a crutch because we couldn't afford to pay for a shot that might be sort of more a traditional way to use archival. But this, we really tried to use it more uh, as an emotional element. That was more of the conceit of the storytelling there. And so as we went through it and we found these powerful images, I know our imitates life, you know, I, at some point I saw something, I said, this is incredibly striking. It was a body floating. You just saw feet floating in water, you know, I had put it in a little montage. It ended up not staying in the final version, but it was going to open the series. And it was a just a collage of 2015 and everything that happened mixed with the storm. And I found this image and John saw it and he said, oh, I want to shoot that. So sort of some things fed each other that way. And then the more we got into it, there is a visceral... Uh, reaction that you have to seeing something real like that. And it's deeply emotional. And, you know, I think the struggle with it, with it was just making sure it wasn't manipulative, to make sure it wasn't exploitive. We just wanted to make sure that, you know, there's some, you know, honor, these are real lives, these are real people. So many people were affected and th that imagery is, is strong and traumatic for so many people. But at the same time, you don't want to check out and forget that this is just, you know, a TV show. The point is to understand that this really happened and it can happen again. And that was really the driving force behind it. And as we sort of put some in, 
I think people, both the studio, everybody was reacting to it and they just wanted more and more and more and more. And then sort of using it as this emotional element really came into effect. Uh, we sort of retroactively added that. I think Lou added that to episode one when a man is at the window. Colin had added it to episode two when Vera's looking out the window and uh, she's seeing the water rise up, you know, and then that becomes the language. And then later in episode three, I think grounding everything in that reality became so much more powerful than any ADR line that you could possibly use or find, you know, come up with that, that quality of a true phone call. And I had found some phone calls going through all the footage. We had tons of footage and these desperate calls to 911 were very powerful. And I started hearing these, you know, interviews and news clips. And ultimately at the end of three, when the power's out and we, lose you know lose everything all those audio clips are genuine archival footage from that time um in fact i saw somebody on twitter recognize one of the clips so that was really it sort of evolved into that but it really grounded us in the reality of the story for people who haven't seen the show and there's no spoiler in this but to revisit a little more specifically about what is unique about this we talked about that view from the top floor and then the cutaways are not things that she's seen in other words it's not her eye bouncing around it's archival footage from the event and similarly they're having a conversation at a golf course in dallas and we cut to these images and there's really with this emotional effect you're talking about of the tragedy in new orleans and that's where i felt was really intentional and interesting in the way and you're saying that was sort of the emotional building and adding those emotional punches to these other moments that we're having yes and i guess i had a similar reaction to the audio over the darkness where it was bringing me to that it wasn't just about the darkness but it was about all of that going on so i see those things connecting and i and i think you're saying that as well but i want to suss that out a little more yeah so i have to give a credit because although i had cut the initial um episode two with those moments of the golf course, Vera looking out the window, Colin Rich, he added those pieces kind of after the fact as we got deeper into the process. But along with this language that we had sort of developed on American crime was this idea of emotion of a, of a what we coined uh, an emotional cutaway. So we would break time, real time and cut to something, say somebody has heard something really traumatic we cut real, you know, in the middle of a scene to a stolen moment where maybe they're looking out the window and they look, you know, you know, they're feeling something and you can understand the inner emotion, the inner story of what this person is experiencing in that moment. It's more sort of experimental, impressionistic, I would say impressionistic. And that's kind it kind of took the place of that. So instead of not, we're not literally seeing the destruction of buildings, people trapped in houses when she's looking out the window. She has seen those images before. She's looking for her husband. She doesn't know where he is. She can envision that all the chaos, it's sort of like 
you jump into somebody's psyche for a second. This is their their fears. It's everything, right? It's it's all those image, images. We do it, you know, we do it all the time. And so that's really what it is. It's sort of bringing you into uh, their like inner turmoil and their emotional state. Now, another technique that uh, I wanted to dive a little deeper with you, and this may be sort of a collaboration between editing and cinematography under John Ridley's direction. This idea that in episode five, I just noticed that lots of the conversations, the close-ups were really tight on the people. There'd be this temptation to do a wider shot, I think, under traditional editing. Really, we went to these close, almost claustrophobic shots throughout that episode. There's a couple of specific instances, but give me a sense of that general idea and the intention behind it. So again, it is something that is sort of an established, that same sort of established language. There's something that John talks about a lot, which is which is film feeling experiential. So with that, when you strip all that away, and it's something Ramsey Nickel, you know, again, our DP, they've worked together on many projects. John tends to do these extremes of like a wide and a super close. He did more medium shots in this series than than he maybe usually would have done because there's so much information that needs to come across. But I think by episode five, we are set at such a breaking point. We know the chaos that is going on and we want to stick with those people and we want, we want to feel what they're feeling. And when you're so tight on somebody, you see every tiny little reaction that they have, you know? And so you're really in it and you're feeling it with them and it makes a big impact. So it makes sense to sort of have that. I think episode five is probably the heaviest episode. And so to have that emotional weight cinematically made sense. Well, talk to me about some other techniques that maybe I wouldn't have noticed, but on a second watch, you'd like to point out and sort of inform some of the editing that was unique to this show. Well, and I don't know how much of it really comes across because, you know, you're watching some of this, uh, well, you're watching it on TV. So, but I know we all really value sound design, which is not something visually you see, but it's a really powerful way and it's grossly underestimated how powerful it is in feeling again, that subjective point of view. So getting into a subjective space and really everything drowns out. It becomes only like what what one person can hear. It becomes, you know, the sound of a, a helicopter kind of droning out and then becoming, you know, a heartbeat. It, it becomes just very subjective. I think the end of episode three, there's an emergency. They're trying to resuscitate a man and everything becomes a little bit heightened through Dr. Poe's point of view. Everything becomes a little bit distant and really the emphasis that we're hearing there is on the sort of like literally the hands hitting a chest and trying to resuscitate this person and sort of the brutality of that and how that is sort of foreshadowing and really should be in some ways, you know, she's a doctor, but she's foreseeing this happening 
over and over and over again. And just sort of the brutality on the body to save this life. So it's, it's subtle. I think there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of the, the sound work that is done, but hopefully at least subconsciously it does its job and sort of bringing us in and focusing us um, on that subjective point of view so that we can really be with our characters. Had you worked with this sound team on American Crime as well, or were they new to this project? So I had not worked with this sound team. John had. He had worked with Glenn Fremantle. We did a an indie movie together, and he was on that, but he's based in London, so we had never had that sort of close kind of sitting there on the mixed stage uh, situation. But John, you know, really values him, and he's done a lot of John's work before, so it makes sense for him to have done it. Now, are there certain scenes that uh, strike you as your favorite where, I don't know, was a specific challenge that you, you had to solve or just the way it came together you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's in some of the simpler scenes. I think it was all really exciting for me to have the ability to have some bigger VFX shots and see how that all plays out. But it was really in the intimacy. I mean, my favorite, my personal favorite scene that I got to cut was a very simple conversation between Dr. Robichaux or Nurse Robichaux, she was a nurse, and Emmett Everett, a patient, an overweight patient. And she comes in and says, you know, we're, we're going to have to evacuate and I have to leave you in the care of somebody else. And I give credit to John in, the, in this episode and the scene specifically for not overwriting it because in the moment he's telling um, this nurse, he wants to tell her, you know, tell my wife, you know, something, you know, but he doesn't really have the words and he sort of just surrenders and says, just tell her whatever. And they have established this really beautiful relationship. And so She's pregnant, the nurse is pregnant, and there's this feeling, you, you see both this life that is about to come forward and then also possibly this loss of life happening at the same time and the acknowledgement of all that and the acknowledgement of grace and uh, forgiveness. It, it, you know, it's all, it's just very deep and very heavy and I think uh, when I was cutting that scene, it just, it really hit me very hard that it was such a good scene to me that I felt like I was almost witnessing somebody's last words. And I had to sort of take a moment and, you know, get myself together again. And so that was, that was one of my personal favorites in terms of just the emotionality of it. But I also had a really great time doing the end of episode three, when we fall into darkness. Um, that was a challenge because it wasn't hitting at first. Um, so we didn't have that, those audio pieces. It wasn't feeling dire enough. And so it was this discovery of sort of adding this archival sonically and seeing how that can weight us in the reality of it. And that was like a really great discovery. 
So Joanne, to approach this from a different direction, you also edited the first season of Only Murders in the Building. In fact, you are, congratulations, you are nominated for an Emmy for your work that, on that Thank show. Thank you. Thank you. How is different between editing that show and the work you did on Five Days? Obviously, completely different. And I did that on purpose. I like having variety. But I also truly feel like I approach everything the same. I work from a place of instinct, following my gut, following my instincts and knowing how to use that empathetic muscle. And also I I have to trust my taste, you know? And so um, when it comes to comedy, it's the same thing. You know, I have to trust what, what is funny to me, I'm hoping is funny to somebody else. And it's the same with drama. Is this the most grounded thing? Is this believable? In both cases, we were trying to go for a grounded performance. It's just <laughs> tonally different, different stories. So um, extremely different stories. But I think that's one thing that oftentimes editors get typecast. And so it's very easy to say, this is a comedy editor. And not that there are some people that can take something that is mediocre and actually make it funny. And it's a real skill and gift. And there are people that, again, that can just make you cry so easily. But I think generally speaking, and when I interviewed with the showrunner on Only Murders in the Building, he asked me, because I mainly had a dramatic experience in drama, you know, why do you think you can do, <laughs> why do you think you can do this comedy? And I said to him, I think editors, especially myself, but I think editors in general have a strong command on the full spectrum of human emotion. And this is just a different part of the spectrum. And he listened to me and he took that in and understood and he agreed, you know, why not? Different in um, the work and, and in the day-to-day in terms of laughing versus literally crying. <laughs> um, but not a difference in the aspect of the place I'm I'm personally working from, you know, um, which is always just instinct, that emotion. Joanne, I've enjoyed your work on both of these shows. Congratulations. I think we're out of time on that note. We'll call it a wrap. It's so great having you here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media. So check it out. Joanne, where are we next going to see your work? So I am currently working on a movie for Netflix. It's about Shirley Chisholm, her run for president in 1972. And um, we hope it comes out in 2023. Um, and it's starring Regina King, and she is fierce, a force. She's unbelievable. Oh, looking forward to that. Of course, with Netflix, it's always hard to guess when they're actually going to release stuff while you're working on it. But we'll keep an eye out for that. And Joanne, you should consider coming back. I hope you tell us more about it. Thank you. My closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again for Bullet Oil.